Welcome to This Must Be The Place, the show that strives to reveal the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. Whether these places are cities, fictional locations, street corners, public squares, or barely noticed nooks and crannies, we will bring you weekly stories, features, and interviews, all striving to let you feel the texture of these places. Today, I'm taking a break from the guest interview format, and I want to talk a bit about a phenomenon that has captured my curiosity for a long time. I want to explore what it is about certain places, certain cities, and certain moments in time that tend to spawn a unique musical sound and the community that grows around that sound. I'm not talking about uh, musical genres or styles that are associated with a certain nation or a certain group of people. For instance, I'm not talking about mariachi or ranchera music in Mexico, nor am I talking about bossa nova in Brazil or, or tango in Argentina or anything like that. I am thinking of more specific bursts of sudden musical activity that lasts for a short period of time and seems to express the feel and the character of the places they come from at that specific moment in time. To make it more clear, I want to talk about two places and two moments in time. Berlin in the mid-1970s, and Athens, Georgia in the early and mid-80s. Perhaps you're starting to suspect that I'm a member of the so-called uh, Generation X, and my choices reflect that, right? Not very wide-ranging of me. I know. But hey, these are periods that I feel I can talk about and have been curious about, and by no means am I a music expert or a historian, but that shouldn't stop me from exploring what makes the connection between places, moments, and time and music so fascinating to me. So let's start. Let's start talking about Berlin in the mid-1970s. My entry point to thinking about the influence of Berlin on electronic and post-punk music was a deep dive into David Bowie's Berlin Trilogy. This phrase is often refers to three albums that he recorded between 1976 and 1979. The three albums are Low, Heroes, and Lodger. These albums are considered part of a distinct era in Bowie's career, where he bridged his earlier theatrical, persona-based approach to performance with such characters as, as Siggy Stardust and the Thin White Duke. And he bridged those with his burst of super shiny commercial success in the early 80s and throughout that decade. But wait, there's more. There's a, a certain addition that we have to talk about. During this time, Bowie was joined by Iggy Pop. Iggy had just experienced a steep rise and an equally steep fall with his band, The Stooges. And he was strung out on heroin. He was a, a complete mess. He was a, a bewildered, feral junkie, not sure if his career would ever recover, um, just at the bottom, bottom of his career. Bowie had always admired Iggy. In fact, it was rumored that Bowie's Ziggy Stardust persona was inspired by Iggy's confrontational and flamboyant performances with The Stooges. Given that Bowie was also disillusioned with his own life in L.A. and Los Angeles, and was also battling his, his own addiction to cocaine, they both 
joined forces, decided to pick up and just leave to have a change of scenery. During this time, Iggy Pop released two albums, The Idiot and Lust for Life. Both were produced by Bowie. Depending on who you listen to, either Bowie was the dominant one, injecting his music and his style into Iggy's art, or the collaboration was very fluid, making it difficult to tease out who was responsible for music and who was responsible for lyrics. That's not surprising given that the pair shared the same first floor apartment in an Art Nouveau building in the neighborhood of Schomburg in Berlin. They spent long stretches of time together, trying to sober up and fiddling with musical instruments and with those newfangled electronic devices. In the book, Backstage Passes, Life on the Wild Side with David Bowie, Angela Bowie wrote the following, quote, Berlin called to him in other ways. He chose to live in a section of the city as bleak, anonymous, and culturally lost as possible, Schoenberg, populated largely by Turkish immigrants. He took an apartment above an auto parts store and ate at the local working men's cafe. Talk about alienation. End quote. And we have to remember, this was West Berlin in the mid-70s, in the midst of the Cold War. This was a city that, before the Nazis gained power in 1933, had seen a vigorous, decadent, libertine lifestyle that produced a a rich vein of anti-establishment art and philosophy, often referred to as the Weimar era. This era was squashed by Nazism, by war, and by post-war reconstruction. And now, West Berlin was really a solitary speck in the middle of communist East Germany. Bowie, as you likely know, he, he was a bit of a chameleon. He, he really excelled at taking on new styles and themes offered by his collaborators and by the cultural um, zeitgeist around him. My wife and I once compared him to, uh, oh boy, to tofu. Uh, tofu collects the flavors that are around it and enhances them to make something even better. I don't know, is that a good metaphor? Eh, feels kind of wimpy to pair Bowie and tofu. Uh, we probably have to think of a better one, but but run with it and you know just be charitable with me about that one. It isn't a surprise then that Bowie and Iggy crossed paths with some of the, the underground German musical acts at the time, such as a band called Neu, N-E-U, with an exclamation mark. They were a, a minimalist, beat-driven, krautrock band, and also with Kraftwerk, who were pioneers of electronic music. One, two, three, four...
bands consciously rejected American-based melodic approaches to music. They really preferred minimalist ambient compositions and creating electronic soundscapes. There was no prog rock, uh, frippery, nor country rock hybridization for these folks. That that was not even in the scene. The sound and mood of Berlin at the time was minimalist. It was detached. It was foreboding. And all this seeped into Bowie and Nicky's and bloodstream. Let me read from August Brown's piece in the Los Angeles Times. Quote, Bowie's albums evoked the city's concrete brutalism as metered out in martial rhythms and empty spaces. He conjured its eerie isolation with synthesizer experiments and melancholy vocal melodies and wrote poignantly about connections forged in spite of, and perhaps exactly because of, East and West Berlin's literal disconnection from the other half of the city. Fans of dark, difficult, synthetic, and lonely music have glamorized it ever since. End quote. Iggy Pop's output during this time shares some of these themes, but I would add, given Iggy's, um, I guess, sleazy and unhinged way of life, and I say that with love, by the way, that there are additional layers of sexual menace and decadence in Iggy's work that fuses that Weimar-era Berlin together with its current Cold War iciness. Out of this came some of the most enduring music of the time, directly influencing emerging post-punk, new wave, and electronic acts that would have their heyday in the 80s. Think about Susie and the Banshees, Public Image Limited, Gary Newman, Depeche Mode, and so many others. So now, let's shift geographic focus and take a look at Athens, Georgia in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Athens, Georgia is a town of about 115,000 people, and it's located about 60 miles to the east of Atlanta. Athens is a college town. It is the location of the primary campus for the University of Georgia, and as such, the town has always been a host to, to energetic nightlife and, and a whole slew of cultural events. But back in the late 70s and early 80s, Athens had less than half the population it has now, it had about 42,000 people, and its population had been declining. I've been to Athens once. My wife is a gargantuan fan of R.E.M., so much so that, that she has lyrics tattooed to her back and is mentioned in the liner notes of one of their albums. Given her passion for them, R.E.M.-related pilgrimages have always been part of our life. So, 
When I was in Athens, we met with many local folks who were deeply familiar with the music history of the place, and we visited key locations where the Athens music scene emerged, places such as the 40 Watt Club, the Georgia Theater, and the site where Tyrone's OC used to be before it burned down. During those late 70s and early 80s, a slew of what I guess I will call post punk new wave slash alternative bands emerged out of this town, including, of course, REM and the B 52s. Along with other lesser known acts such as Pylon, Flat Duo Jets, Barbecue Killers, and, and many others. What struck me as I heard stories about these bands, read about them, and watched a 1987 documentary titled Athens, Georgia Inside Out, there was a shared view across many of these bands. They were, they were all aware and influenced by a specific musical thread that connected the garage rock noise of the MC5 and the Stooges up in Detroit, the punk explosion of the Sex Pistols and the Ramones, along with the, the post punk explorations that were emerging at the same time. However, uh, unlike New York City or unlike London, the musical community in Athens was, was not as competitive. It, it was less showy. There was a certain satisfaction with the lack of massive attention. In that documentary, Athens, Georgia, Inside Out, the guitarist for REM, uh, Peter Buck, said, and I'm paraphrasing a little because I was writing notes while I was watching the documentary, and, and you know, the notes are not exactly verbatim. He said that when he arrived in Athens in 1977, there was no real punk rock scene there. The B 52s and Pylon were doing something interesting and neat, and it made him see that he could be a band without being Ted Nugent or without being Styx or something like that. He could move to New York or to LA if he wanted to, but why would he want to? Athens had nice people, had great record stores, and he could go downtown and, and see his friends and not fight about who's appearing at what club and when. R.E.M.'s music is often described as literary and cerebral, no doubt due to Michael Stipe's cryptic and evocative lyrics, and, and that feels right, but, but I also find an interesting vein to mind around the relationship between the South and R.E.M. and the bands in the region. I mean, what happens when you take garage band, punk, and post punk and bring them into a Southern town? How does that combination alter and shift what we know about those genres? This is where it might get dicey and I might flirt with, with generalizing a whole region. And, and that's okay, I'll just stick my neck out. But when I think of the South, I tend to think of, of the heat, the humidity, a long history of, of guitar based music, of, of finger picking, and frankly, bursts of passion and madness. I mean, think of the works of William Faulkner, the works of Tennessee Williams, think of a streetcar named Desire in particular. I mean, these are moments where passions burst through the fabric of the everyday. In another moment in that Athens documentary, a local painter makes a reference to a Southern poet named Randall Jarrell, who once described the American South, and by extension, its art and its culture, as being like the wet underside of a board. 
It might appear smooth and plain on the top, but once you lift it and turn it, things scurry out of it. That makes sense to me. I mean, what happens when you bring angular, spiky music of post-punk into a southern sensibility? It seems to me that, that the sharpness remains, but it is also polished by a rollicking, jangly guitar style. I mean, Athens, Georgia is not only a southern town, it's also close to the Appalachian region and is therefore influenced by, by bluegrass. Perhaps it's not therefore surprising that a lot of the bands in Athens allowed a melodic style to emerge, and that was okay because it was within the framework of that angular post-punk. B-52s, they're another major band, of course, to emerge from Athens. And, you know, I always found it odd that their music is often associated or, or tied to goofy party moments, causing people on the dance floor to whoop and knowing joy and, and jump up and jump up and down. I've always sensed a strong undercurrent of, of, of menace and unmoored insanity flowing through many of their songs. It's as if you're you're out on a night on the town with a charming pencil mustache companion, and that companion at any moment could whip out a switchblade, stab someone repeatedly, and laugh maniacally as you flee together. I mean, is it just me? <laughs> There's a fantastic black and white video of the B-52s on YouTube performing Rock Lobster in 1978, about a month before they released that first album. You can find that link on our site uh, with the article accompanying this podcast. It really does show them at their unhinged best. And finally, I need to talk a bit about a third band, Pylon. I knew very little of them before my trip to Athens, but my curiosity unleashed an ensuing uh, a storm of research, and now I'm, I'm really happy that they are part of my musical diet, so to speak. In some ways, Pylon was the band that had the closest loyalty to that post-punk angularity and menace. Several of their songs unleash spiky guitar and spiky bass lines, and those compete with equally spiky and aggressive vocal deliveries. But the, the love of that melody and that carefree attitude really permeates across their songs. Don't 
as I was thinking about what places and moments and time to discuss today, I did think of a, a few other ones that I want to recognize. Of course, there's Seattle of the late 80s and early 90s, spawning the, the so-called grunge movement. We also have uh, Detroit in the late 80s and early 90s, producing artists such as um, Derek May, Juan Atkins, and, and Kevin Saunderson, who fused funk and electronic technology to create techno. And then there is Bristol, England, on the west side of England, where in the mid-90s, acts such as Massive Attack, Portishead, and Tricky created this, this potent mix of geez, electronic, dub, hip-hop, and, and soul to some extent. And this movement was often referred to as the trip-hop movement, much to the chagrin of Tricky, who hates to be called a, a trip-hop artist. I will admit, however, that when it comes to the 21st century, I have a hard time thinking of similar places and moments in time that can easily be identified in the same ways. Perhaps there is something around the community that formed in Nashville? Honestly, I'm not sure. I'll open it up to you. Can you think of, of uh, comparable scenes, if you will, that formed in the past 15 years or so? Perhaps these moments in time are still happening and I'm not paying attention. Or... Or maybe the acceleration of the internet is really flattening out local movements and new music directions. And really, all of these are happening in a distributed way across the globe. There is no longer geographic centers of gravity going on, but rather musical moments that are distributed equally across the internet. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave comments about this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io, where our podcast, videos, and written content live. On that site is a companion article to this podcast where you can find a wealth of relevant links. And of course, you can always subscribe and receive the latest greatest episode on your favorite app and device. We are now on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Take your pick or, or fire up your favorite podcatcher. Until the next time, this must be the place. <laughs>